our verse-by-verse teaching of Genesis, we find ourselves now in a really critical chapter in the book, in chapter 40, where you find Joseph uh, suffering the effects, not really of his own sin, though Joseph was indeed a sinner, but suffering the effects of the sins of those around him. Uh, His father, who played the favorite and was very unwise, undiscerning, who frankly was not a good leader. Um, The sins of his brothers, who were malicious and unkind. The sins of a slave owner, the sins of a seductress, uh, the sins of a, a fallen world all around him. And Joseph is a victim, again, not because he is sinless, but because he and everybody else around him, they collectively were very sinful. Because of that, we find Joseph in a situation where he feels uh, very forgotten. But we will find, as we learned last week, that despite the effects of sin upon those around him, that he is not forsaken, that the Lord is with him. We saw this last week. In chapter 39, verse 2, Moses tells us in this text that the Lord was with Joseph. And we find at the end of the text as well in verse 21 that the Lord was with Joseph. Moses, as the narrator of this story, saw that. He could look back on the story and notice it. But I think in some ways we have to think that Joseph saw it too though imperfectly. Joseph's very difficult life reminds us that though our trials are often prolonged and heartbreaking, our faithful Lord is at work for our joy and for the good of others. This allows us to trust Him through injustice, through heartbreak, through despair. He will never forsake us. And He will use our trials to change us, to bless us, and then to bless others through us. There's two simple things this text puts in front of us today, and the first one is this. Extended trials shake us to the core and test our confidence in the Lord. We know that Joseph was 17 when all these events began to take place, when he began having dreams, sharing them with his brothers. They turned on him, eventually sold him to slave traders who took him down to Egypt, sold him to Potiphar. He became Potiphar's slave servant who was elevated. Potiphar liked Joseph a lot, but Potiphar's wife was an evil seductress who would not leave him alone. And because of that, he resisted her advances by God's grace, and she made up a lie about him. She slandered him, and it got him thrown in prison. By the time in our next chapter, chapter 41, because most of you know the story, I'm not giving anything away like a spoiler, most of you know this, Joseph gets out of prison and he's elevated to second in command in one of the greatest empires of the world. And by that time he's 30. So the interval between dreams and elevation out of prison was 13 years. That's a long time. That's that's extended trial. Okay, let's, let's kind of bring this down to where you and I are. Whenever we um, 
have a little tiff with our spouse, like in the morning over breakfast. And then we don't see him or her until later on that evening at dinner. And we can't really talk about the tiff, the tension over dinner, because the kids are sitting around the table. We've got to wait till we get them in bed, which takes a long time to get your kids in bed, right? Is, don't you find it's really surprising that your kids are shocked every night when you're going to put them to bed? Like, it's crazy. They're like, bed? Yeah. Um, and then they come down seven times because the wind is blowing and they're thirsty and they have an ache in their knee and the dog is licking them and whatever. So finally you get in bed like 10 p.m. And so now the, the frustration with your spouse has been going on for like 15, 16 hours. That feels like a long trial until you can come together and work that out. When you have a friend with whom your relationship is, needs mending, there's some tension there. And it wasn't what it used to be. Somebody maybe you used to vacation with, and, and now you, you barely talk. That can go on for days, and weeks, months. A hardship with a child, a child who's no longer walking with Christ. And now we're starting to get into to longer trials. The short ones, the short ones that last a day or a few days, those are agonizing. But what about when they're long? like a child who isn't walking with Christ anymore, like a marriage which is unfixable, like a relationship which will never be mended, like long-term poverty, like a chronic illness, like a death sentence, like your character being slandered and you never quite get it back. You see, any trial, brothers and sisters, is hard. It's the extended ones that are the hardest. Because most of us, whenever we face a trial, when we see it coming down the way, we know, oh, it's coming. And we sort of brace ourselves, right? Like going out on a windy day and broadening your stance a little bit so you don't get knocked over. But we know that the wind is going to be over because we see the forecast. It'll be better tomorrow. But when you see an extended trial coming or you find that the trial you thought would be short turns out to be an extended one, those are the ones that really get to us. Those are the ones that wear us down. Those are the ones that test our strength and test our resolve and, and frankly, even more importantly, test our confidence in the Lord. When we face short trials, our confidence in God is shaken a bit because we wonder, why would a good God allow me to go through something so hard? But when that supposedly good God puts you through something long, that's when you question. That's when you wonder. Do you see me? I mean, do you really see me, God? Do you care about me? Are you like a puppet master and I'm like a puppet on a string and you're playing with me, you're toying with me to get some sort of thrill? Are you even real? Is there a God? See, that's when the questions come. The questions come when the trials get so long. Joseph's life becomes a true metaphor for all those who would come after, Israel included. Back in Genesis chapter 15, when God makes his covenant with Abraham, he says to Abraham something very interesting. He says, I'm going to bless you, and through doing so, I'm going to bless the world. But know that those who will come through you, the nation that I will build through you, through your son, 
They will grow into a mighty nation, but they will go into captivity for 400 years. It's, it's interesting that, that with the blessing of offspring, this old man who doesn't have any yet, with the blessing of offspring, God promises that trials will come for four centuries. Most of us don't like four minutes of hardship. And then for the last 14 chapters of Genesis, we find that Joseph himself becomes the prefiguring one who will undergo those trials. And eventually, because of Joseph being in Egypt, the whole nation will go down there, which is only about 70 people by the end of the book. But by the beginning of the next book in Exodus, the second book of our Pentateuch, they are a strong and mighty nation, not in military power, not in confidence, not in armament or resources, but they're large and they have God's favor. And Moses comes to them after 400 years of captivity and he can tell them the story of Joseph, how a singular figure became a slave, but God was with him and God delivered him. Israel needed to know that. Can you imagine Moses by the banks of the river talking to the people saying, God delivered Joseph. He has sent me to deliver you. Brothers and sisters, fellow Hebrew slaves, I know what it's like to suffer neglect. I know what it's like to wonder if Yahweh sees us, but He does, and He has heard your cries, and I am here, and He will deliver us. They would need to know that not only while they were in Egypt, but afterward. When their backs were against the Red Sea and they were about to be annihilated. When they wandered through the desert and wondered where their next meal would come from. When they sinned against God and had to wander for 40 years. Sick people needed to know that Yahweh saw them. Childless mothers needed to know that Yahweh saw them. The poor and the destitute and the wandering and the wondering needed to know that Yahweh saw them. Joseph is a man who needed to know that God saw him. And so that brings us to the reading of the text, Genesis 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker, of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to him in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me. And on the vine there were three branches, and as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup. 
and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days, and three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. They hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. May God bless to us the reading of his word. Joseph here is going through extended trial. Between the time that he was sold, as I've already said to you, into the hand of Potiphar until the time he became second in command in Egypt, which we'll learn about next week, or in two weeks rather, um, we have an interval of 13 years, a long time. And Joseph had a lot of time to wonder. Despite the fact that he was a slave in Potiphar's house in chapter 39, life was okay. He was favored by Potiphar. Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him, and Potiphar recognized this and seemingly treated him pretty well. But because of his seductive wife, it cost Joseph his relative freedom, and now he's in another kind of pit. He's serving people around him. He's cut off from his land. He's cut off from his family. The dreams that God gave him that one day his family might even bow down to him, that he would be elevated and received God's blessings, those seemed a long way off now. He had a long time to, to stew, a long time to wonder, a lot of time to doubt. He had plenty of time to grow angry, to become bitter. And like Job, who had a wife who often was not a lot of help to him, You would think that by that point, he might just curse God and die. If you're really up there, I curse you. You've cut me off. All the promises that Abraham talked about, all the stuff that Isaac talked about, all the stuff that my dad talked about, all these promises that you're a good God who shows grace. Where's mine? But in all this, we find... God working. You notice that still Joseph seemed to have some kind of confidence in God because he tells the cupbearer whenever he interprets his dream his own cause. He he pleads his cause with him. He has enough sense to, to look at this guy as a guy who can get him out. He knows this guy was favored by Pharaoh and because of the dream and the interpretation of it, Joseph knows that the cupbearer is going to have an audience with the king very soon. 
And Joseph had seemingly not grown twisted, not grown bitter, not cursed God and die, because he pleads his cause. Perhaps he sees signs of providence here that God is working. We'll talk more about this toward the end today. But before we move on to our next point, the really the point of the text, I, w- I want to say to you that, that we never, ever should take suffering lightly. Um, one of the difficulties of suffering is that often we, we feel very alone. And one of the things that we say often around here in our church family is that we are to live with our antenna up. We are to pay attention to the world around us, to, to sense what's going on around us. Looking out at you today, I know those of you who are good at that naturally, and I can probably count you on one hand. The rest of us are not very good at that. Most of us, it doesn't come naturally to. A few of you have this debilitating disease of your antenna always being up and you feel everything. And you kind of wish you didn't have that gift. The rest of us, our antenna are tucked way down somewhere in our head and we've got to extend them volitionally or we never feel what's going on around us. But I I make a silly point to say this. We've got to learn to do that together. In a church like ours, we've had plenty, even recently. A lot over the past couple of years. Stuff that has not seemed fair. Stuff that makes us question that... We really believe that there's a God up there who's good, let alone sees us. And the extended trials are the hardest ones. And those are the ones where we have to to be really near each other. It's easy whenever the trials come initially to rally around people who are struggling. Meal trains and texts and cards. It's the extended ones that get difficult because we forget. It goes a bit out of sight, out of mind, and We have good intentions and we want to be around those people, but it's hard because our life moves on and doesn't exactly experience the trial that our brother or sister is facing. But it's important to know that those people are still struggling, still still undergoing the, the shock of their trial, struggling through confidence in God, and they need us. They need you to tell them the truth. Now, not every time you see them. But they need to tell, they need to be told about Joseph. They need to be told that there was a guy who was severely mistreated and his trial was long. But the Lord was with him. The Lord took care of him. And the Lord will take care of your brother and sister. And often he will do that through you. This is one of the reasons why we take such great time in our worship services on Sundays and in our small groups and discipleship to understand the word. To equip you to help you understand it yourself, to teach you how to study it so that whenever you have a chance to come alongside your brother or sister because your antenna are up and you recognize that they're hurting, you can come alongside them and give them truth. Not using the Bible like a club, not beating them over the head, but, but in season, when it's appropriate, with tenderness and compassion and tears, coming alongside your brother or sister and applying the word to them I want to say to you parenthetically, sometimes the best thing that you can do with your brother and sister is just to shut up. So this is a little parenthetical for just a moment. Sometimes the best thing to do for your brother and sister is just to go sit with them. Hold your hand, you know, hold their hand and yours. And for some of you that feels really creepy, especially guys. So if it's like a guy thing, maybe just sit across the chair from them and don't look at them, but just be there. I don't know. Um, Don't touch knees, whatever, but just be there. But 
Sometimes it's good to be quiet, just to know that your presence is there, that, that, that they're on your mind. And then you balance that out, to close the parenthesis, with, with proclaiming truth to them. Not because they don't know it, but because they need to hear it again. And I wonder, now to come back to our text, if, if that's what Joseph did. That despite the failures of his father Jacob, that maybe he remembered what Jacob had told him. That Jacob had told him about Abraham's trials and Isaac's trials and his own, of having to flee his own country as an old man, to go to Paddan Aram to be cheated by his father-in-law, to lose his wife, Joseph's mother, to sojourn, to fear his own brother, Joseph's uncle Esau. I wonder if Jacob told the stories to Joseph so that when Joseph was sold to Potiphar and underwent the seduction of Potiphar's wife and now finds himself in prison in Genesis chapter 40 that he rehearsed the truths again and again and again. Brothers and sisters, sometimes the last thing we want to do whenever we are undergoing trial, particularly extended trial, is to listen to God's truths. I think reflexively, those of us who are Christians, whenever we face a trial, like, like when it initially comes and we broaden our stance and brace ourselves against the onslaught of the wind, that, that maybe we go back to the verses we know. We'll go read a psalm, we'll remember something we learned in Awana a long time ago, and a few texts coming from our friends giving us their favorite verses, and like we're, we're living there for a while. But when the extended trials come, it's hard for us to depend upon God's promises because we're angry and we're bitter and we're hurting. And we just want relief. But I wonder, and I'm speculating a bit, but I think there's reason to have some confidence that Joseph remembered God's promises. That God would bless Abraham's offspring, and he was one of them. And it helped him to endure while he was going through this. So, Trials shake us to the core and test our confidence in the Lord, but extended trials, those are the ones that really cause us to question whether there is a God, and if He's there, if He loves us, and He cares about us. And by way of application, we need each other during these times to run to each other, to support each other. This world is full of suffering. We see it all around us because of our own sin and because of the sin of other people around us. Because of sin, 120-odd people were murdered in Paris this weekend. Because of sin, your friends are losing their marriages. Because of sin, children rebel against parents. Because of sin, people lust and are greedy and are prideful. That's because of sin. And until Jesus comes and makes it all new we'll have to deal with it. And often that sin results in us going through very difficult trials. But what's God going to do about it? That's all well and good, and, and maybe we can just kind of muddle through. But what's God going to do about it? Well, that brings us to the next and more important point. The Lord faithfully watches over us and shepherds us through all of our trials. If you know the story you can see some of the movements here. Joseph went to this prison at just the right time. And Pharaoh got mad at his cupbearer and baker 
at just the right time. And at just the right time, the captain of the guard appointed just the right guy to go to the cupbearer and the baker and find out that they had had dreams. And just at the right time, God gave Joseph the awareness to see that those dreams were from God. And at just the right time, Joseph was given the ability to interpret them at just the right time. And this isn't mere happenstance. This isn't chance. It isn't luck. This isn't four-leaf clover, rabbit's foot stuff. This is because God is good. And I think this helps us to see that perhaps Joseph really wasn't bitter. Because a bitter person might not have been able to discern what God was doing. But Joseph seems to discern even slight movements of providence. And I want to say to you that this is a really important principle as you move through your trials. It is almost never the case that when you're in the midst of your trial that you can discern how long it will be and what the purpose of it is. Almost never. Like nowadays, whenever we watch Blu-rays, you can just go down to scene selection and, and, and go to like the final scene and watch the end. And if you don't want to take the time to do that, just go on the internet and you can find out through a spoiler what the movie's about. You can't do that with your trials. There's no spoiler alerts for your trials. You can't figure them out. Moreover, you can't figure out the design of them. Like, why is God doing this? Those are two of the most fundamental questions that we ask whenever we're undergoing extended trial. Why and when will it be over? Joseph didn't know. But instead of growing bitter, instead of losing heart, he discerned the subtle providence of God, and ran to it when it came. And I think there's a principle here. That despite the fact that you do not know the endurance of it, you don't know how long it will be, and despite the fact that you don't know the total design of it, to watch for the movements of God. To see little subtle things along the way, little lessons. Opportunities that come around to share your story with people who are hurting in similar ways chances to to learn about the goodness of God that you never would have had otherwise because your heart wasn't open to it. Opportunities to treasure the grace of God that you never would have valued because you thought life was okay before and you didn't need it. Now we know at the end of the story that though the cupbearer is restored to his position, that he forgot Joseph. He was out of sight, out of mind. He, he completely neglected him. We'll see the rest of that story at the end next week. But, but Joseph was left to himself for even a longer period because we know it took two years from the time that the cupbearer was restored until he told Pharaoh about the dream and the dream interpreter. Joseph would have to undergo two more years of being neglected. One of the ways that we can discern the little movements of God along the way is to invite people alongside us while we're undergoing those trials. So those people around us who have their antenna up, who know that we're struggling, who know that we're suffering, who know that we're going through trials, invite those people in. Ask them to sit with you. Ask them to hear your story. Ask them to help you discern the movements of God along the way. That, that takes humility. I say to you as one who has struggled much over the past 10 years of life, and had I known that my occupation would lead to the kind of trials that it has, I don't know that I would have chosen it. 
just to be very honest. But I said to my wife the other day, that had God not given us this life, we would never appreciate Him the way that we do. We would never love the gospel the way that we do. Because for us, the gospel no longer is theory. That God is gracious to us in Christ despite our sin. I knew that intellectual. I can tell you that. I can use words you've never heard of. But intellectual gospel ascertainment is merely something that feeds our pride. Me included. God has put me through the crucible of soul-shaking faith experiences to help me not just understand the gospel intellectually, but to see it as my only hope. And I am learning, though I'm still imperfect, to reflexively look at Him when the trials come, the next one, especially the ones that seem prolonged, and say, here we go again, but you were good before, and I believe you'll be good again. And I will trust your grace. And though I want to manipulate this circumstance and make it work out for my own good because I think I'm smart and I think I'm strong and I think I'm charismatic and I think I can figure this out because I'm savvy, I can't. And you've proven that to me. And you're giving me another trial and I don't exactly know why, but I do know this, you're good and you will not forsake me. You know how I know that? Because the Bible tells me. The, The Lord sees me. The Lord shepherds me. Why is it that even people who aren't Christians and don't care one whit about the Bible know Psalm 23? Why? It's all great and well to know that there's a God up there who created everything and who's super powerful. But if He doesn't love you, who cares? But the God who made all things, He not only sees you, His heart is towards you and He loves you and He will shepherd you even through the valley of the shadow of death. That's who my God is. And you know what he does then? He puts me in circumstances. He puts you brothers and sisters in circumstances to see if you believe it. You cannot be a second-hander. Just because Joseph learned that the Lord was providentially faithful doesn't mean you know that. Most of us grew up in Christian homes and had pretty good parents. And now you've been in this church and others who've taught you the Bible relatively well. You'd do really well on a Bible quiz. You know, I grew up in circles that were sort of conservative. And one of the things that those conservative kids did for fun is they had Bible quiz teams. You guys grew up with that, any of you? Like five of us. Um, There weren't adult Bible quiz teams. Maybe we should start one with like churches around us and compete with them. I think think we'd do pretty well. Like I don't know what the award would be, like, you know, a t-shirt with our, you know, face on it or like a medal or like a giant leather-bound Bible, I don't, I don't know. And like, like yesterday we went to the, the, the uh, game against Illinois and Champaign and, if, and the Illinois-Ohio State rivalry, whoever wins gets the Illibuck Trophy. You know what this is? It's this big wooden turtle. Back in the day it was a real turtle. I don't know what the, the award would be if like we competed against other churches and like had this thing go back and forth. But I think we'd win a lot. Like you guys are pretty smart biblically. But you see, that's not enough. Sometimes intellectual Christians are very unlovely Christians. And then when the trials come, they just fall apart. But you know what God does? He takes these truths about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and David and Solomon and Jesus and Paul and Peter and John. 
and he puts you through them. He blows out your knees. He allows you to have cancer. He gives you tenuous relationships. He gives you less money than you want. He causes your reputation to be slandered. And then he watches. But not inattentively. He watches with an eye of love. And, and then his hand is with you. And he's shepherding every movement every molecule, every atom that makes up your being and everybody around you, he's holding it together. Every day of your story is already written down. He's not up in heaven with fresh pages and wet ink. That's not what God is doing. Your story is written, and it's a good one. And though lots of those pages are full of shadow and darkness and trial and trouble, the end is good, and there's lots of good throughout. The trial of the faith that we are undergoing is refining us and making us into who we should be, strengthening us, not for our own credit, but for the glory of God, that He is restoring us as image bearers, that He is turning us from people who are self-confident and turning our faces toward Him. Let me try to illustrate this to you for just a moment with, with posture. Our tendency whenever we undergo trial, especially extended trial, is to curve inward. To shrink into sort of a fetal position, even though we hide it from the world around us. To peer inward and, and misery and, and pondering how we're going to find our way out of this trial. But most of us have been around long enough to know that that never works. And what God wants to do, like a really good father, is to take his two fingers and lift our head up and say, look at me. You know how your kids do that sometimes when they're ashamed of something they've done or they're mad at you and they won't look you in the eye? And you have enough sense to take your two fingers and put it under their little chin and lift it up and say, look at me. I love you. I will always love you. And I know what's best for you. That's what God does through His Word. And that's what God has done, brothers and sisters, through your experiences. He's lifting your eyes to Him off of yourself to get you out of your misery, to get you out of trying to figure out the circumstance and how to get out of it and to look to Him. And yes, it may take a long time. And yes, you will not learn those things immediately. But He will never forsake you because He loves you. And your father delights in showing his goodness. And you will never appreciate his goodness if you don't go through hardship. And every step of the way, every movement, big and small, he is faithfully shepherding. For Joseph, he did it by putting him in prison and giving him these two guys. And giving him the ability to recognize dreams and to interpret them. If Joseph had not been put in prison, he would not have met this guy. He would not have met Pharaoh. And that's it. And you think to yourself, why didn't God do it a different way? Why didn't Pharaoh send a decree out into all the surrounding regions saying, send me your best and we'll train them in the academy and they become like earls and dukes in, in Egypt? He didn't do it that way. It's not how things worked. God did it through suffering. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to a couple passages and we'll quit. 
Blake read this for us earlier, but I want to review it just a bit. To the choir master, Psalm of David, a man who had regal authority, but who didn't get that regal authority until he suffered. And even after he had the regal authority, he suffered. What did he say about God? I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. David recalled past experiences where God had delivered him, where God had put his feet on a rock, and then he proclaimed it so other people would hear it. But down in verse 11, David has fresh trials. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Why could he say that with confidence? Because he had seen God do it before. Turn with me now, please, to Psalm 90. This is a prayer of Moses. Man taken away from his parents, raised in Pharaoh's house, driven away, living in obscurity, leading a stubborn people. Moses suffered a lot. Look in verse 12. Moses says, So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long? That's our cry very often. How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. God puts us through affliction, but we can trust him. And lastly, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I do not know the overarching design always of why I struggle or why you struggle. But there is something that we can say when we struggle. There's something that we can discern that God is probably doing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul recounts a time where he received an amazing revelation from God. But because of this, he could have become prideful because he had been the recipient of it. But then he says that God did something to him. Verse 6, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking of the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So what did God do to lead Paul to that conclusion of humility? Verse 7. So, to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, which is basically saying, to keep me from being cocky, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness." Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. 
For when I am weak, then I am strong. Your Father is putting His fingers on your chin and lifting your eyes to Him to keep you from trusting yourself and instead to help you to trust Him. He loves you. And He is ridding you of the idolatry of pride to help you to love and treasure Him most of all. Now, He's doing other things than that. But He's at least doing this. He's not doing it because He's mean. He's doing it because He's good. And he's taking away what is bad and replacing it with what is good. And for all of eternity, we will be with him. And we will love him and we will experience his unending love. And he's preparing us for that. So brothers and sisters, I am sorry for the trials that you face. Many times as a shepherd, I wish I could take them away from you. But I know that they are being administered from the hand of one who is powerful and good. And he will never waste your suffering. He will never waste your trial. Ever. He is working it out for his glory and for your joy. So, extended trials shake us to the core and test our confidence in the Lord. But the Lord faithfully watches over us and shepherds us through all of our trials. A couple words of application, <clears throat> then I want to talk about Jesus, and we'll quit. Parents, teach your children how to suffer. Prepare them. Talk to them about your own. Now, you don't have to let them in on everything. But it's better for our kids when they're 13 and 14 and 15 to face the reality of a broken world. And then to show them what your resources are, where you turn, because they're going to face them. Some of my hardest trials are in my teenage years. Help your kids. Talk to them. Be honest with them. They can understand. But as they watch you not only be honest about your trials, but look to Jesus to get through them, they will learn to do that. And I say to you young people who are here today, life is not easy. It is hard. And as those who love you as parents and aunts and uncles and friends, we wish we could take them away from you. Whenever you came into this world, we knew that life would be hard for you but we love you very much and we will be with you through your hardships. Please turn to us. Please turn to mom and dad and to your friends whenever hard times come and let us, let us help you through those things and show you how good God is. I want to remind you by way of application that I want you to have your antenna up even after this service. Go to those that you know are hurting and if you don't know if they are, ask them. And if you are, tell them. May we suffer well together. Brothers and sisters, when it comes down to it, this text is about Jesus ultimately. Why does God want to get Joseph to Egypt? Because the people of Israel will grow into a nation in Egypt. They will incubate there like a greenhouse. They will grow into a nation. They will eventually get a land. They'll eventually get a king. And all the kings, David included, will be a big disappointment. But a son of David would come. And salvation he will bring, but salvation will come through suffering. Joseph prefigures Christ, at least in a way, that salvation for Joseph's family, for the people of Israel, would come through suffering, unbearable, extended suffering. And Jesus comes in that model to save us through suffering. So you see, we are not exempted from that because we are people of the cross. 
We are saved by Jesus through his work on the cross. But suffering's not the final word. And the resurrection is the promise that renewal is coming, and one day it finally will. And so we say, Lord Jesus, thank you for suffering to take away ours. One day you're coming back. Come back soon, John says at the end of Revelation. The path to glory comes through suffering. But suffering promises glory. So keep that in mind, brothers and sisters, as you suffer today and the weeks to come. Remind each other of these hard but true, um, important truths as you weather together the storms and trials of life. Let's pray together.